0: You're listening to episode 379 of the UAV Digest.
1: I'm Max Flight. And I'm David Vanderhoof. Max, what, what are we doing? I don't remember. <laughs> I know. How does this work?
0: It's been a while. It's been too long. Yeah, we should um, apologize to our uh, audience, but between uh, travel and, and life and... <laughs> Other kinds of things we, uh, we we haven't been producing every week, but we're hoping to uh, to get back into that mode right away. And uh, in fact, David, we're looking forward to having a guest join us next week. We've got uh, an exciting guest scheduled. So everybody has that to look forward to.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's been good. The, the UAVs, you know, one of the things that we didn't, weren't going to talk about tonight, but that little ingenuity aircraft. Oh yeah, it's flown just keeps going and going like the energizer buddy. you know I I guess NASA's one hop success now that it's ten hops later is proving that you know it's it, it's a good thing to fly a helicopter on another planet. So we've got an MIT story that that figures out how to fly faster and, and crash last low-latency 5G and high-speed drone racing. They kind of go together. Then we move on to solar-powered UAVs. The drone made most used by first responders. Yeah, not surprising when we talk about that one. A North Carolina beach patrols with drones and marketing real estate with drone videos, something we haven't talked about in a really long time, but... It clearly has come a long way since we've talked about it. All right,
0: David. Well, uh, should we get started with the stories?
1: Our first story comes from MIT.edu. System trains drones to fly around obstacles at high speed. High-speed drones tend to crash often. I thought that was a very profound statement. <laughs> yeah. But it makes sense,
0: right? Um and we see that at drone races for example uh, i think the audience always loves a great drone crash at a at a drone race but uh, this uh, piece points out that in in part these crashes are caused because well drone aerodynamics are difficult to predict at high speed. so uh, you you can control a drone at relatively low speeds. The the software can control the drone, that is. But at high speeds, the aerodynamics gets kind of complicated. And so we have this issue. But MIT aerospace engineers, they're developing a solution.
1: It's an algorithm. Funny how that works. But it helps to find the fastest route around obstacles without crashing. Drones trained with the new algorithm could fly through an obstacle course up to 20% faster than a drone trained on conventional planning algorithms. So, smarter, wiser, more aerodynamically sound. Now, this algorithm, it actually
0: combines both simulations from a drone uh, flying through a virtual obstacle course, as, as well as data from experiments of a real drone flying through the same course in a physical space. And one of the aspects of this algorithm that I thought was kind of interesting is that if you compare the flight of the drone with a new algorithm, with this improved algorithm, compared to the you know the conventional algorithm, sometimes the old is faster, quicker through a section, and sometimes the new algorithm is quicker through a section. And They say that what might be happening is that the algorithm might slow down the drone. Actually, the new algorithm might slow down the drone when it's encountering a kind of a difficult uh, obstacle or curve or something. Or it might even save its energy in order to speed up and ultimately overtake uh, the drone with the old algorithm. So, uh, David, it sounds like this thing has got some smarts. Um, built into it, it's
1: fascinating. I thought that was a very interesting aspect. You know that, well, sometimes you want to take the curves a little bit slower um, than than flying off the handle or flying out of the course. Um, but it'll it'll make it much more interesting if these things learn faster and faster and faster. The results of this study are published within the International Journal of Robotics Research as. Multi-Fidelity Black Box Optimization for Time-Optimal Quad Rotor Maneuvers. I love scientific titles. I know. How to Make a Quad Rotor Fly Faster. Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, the title is completely descriptive of what this is about, but yeah, it's not the, not the simplest way to say it. You know, and there are several use cases to uh, to this sort of thing. Uh, they mentioned time-critical operations,
1: such as search and rescue. And,
0: of course, David, drone,
1: drone racing. Drone racing. Yeah, but, Max, isn't that going to take the fun out of drone racing? You know... I mean, why, why do most people watch car races? For the crashes. For the crashes. You know, if you start perfecting these drones where they fly these courses all by themselves, (laughs) it's going to take the fun out of it. Oh, yeah, okay, it's perfect, you know. But I'm sure there's plenty of room for improvement before we get to perfection, if we ever get to perfection. I think so. But we can dovetail off of drone racing to T-Mobile's 5G off to drone races. This was from fiercewireless.com. I like the title of that thing. And T-Mobile is partnering with DRL, uh, the Drone Racing League, and showed in a 5G enabled drone with HD video.
0: T-Mobile claims that this drone is uh, one of the world's first racing drones to be equipped with an embedded 5G module that can live stream video straight to the Internet. Pretty powerful. And this module is made by Cucatel.
1: I'm glad you looked up how to say that.
0: I didn't. I just sounded like I knew how to pronounce it.
1: (laughs) The drone won't be racing the Drone Racing League competitions yet. During the 2021-22 season, it will fly both DRL and T-Mobile events. They plan to showcase immersive video content. I think this is really what drone racing needs, is to be able to pretend you're flying in the drone you need a lot of um,
0: data to be transmitted uh, and with low latency in order to really fully capture um, the perspective from the drone in high definition. And so that's where 5G comes in. As we know, 5G um, generally tends to have very, very low latency and it it can have uh, very large data transmission rates. So um, initially at the DRL events, they're going to use this drone to, to capture previews of the course, uh, also to stream to broadcasters over the T-Mobile 5G wireless network for fans at home. You know, it's a symbiosis, I guess, or, you know, there's a synergy between DRL and T-Mobile on this. Uh, you know, both are trying to project images of, you know, high tech and they are trying to demonstrate some, uh, you know, streaming some pretty intense, you know, data heavy video, and uh, you know it, it's a great it's a great uh, partnership, I think, David, because you know they they both get something really good out of this.
1: Yeah, and the technology can mature, and DRL has been working to make drone racing more viewer friendly you know from the beginning and T-Mobile like you said you know they have a product out there that they want to showcase and this is pushing that product to the limit so good for both of them um can't wait to see some of the videos one of my favorite things was my father loved watching golf on television
0: <laughs> i can't wait for this connection
1: the only part i liked about watching golf was back in the good old days when they were outlining the course and they would fly the course with a helicopter. Yeah. So you would fly across the field. I that, that was really cool. Now they do that with a drone. But that was pretty much all the golf that I wanted to watch. So, I mean, I can see this kind of technology moving besides drone racing to, like, the Olympics, which just wrapped up. And there was a lot of drone footage, surprisingly, in the Olympics um, to the point where, you know, Max, we've been doing this long enough that we've gone through – a couple of Olympics now and less and less it's obvious it's drone footage or it is obvious it's drone footage, but it's not so, um, jarring, Mm. you know, it's, it's just a natural way to view spectate the sports.
0: Yeah, it sure is. And we'll put a video in the show notes, um, for this episode. It's uh, called making of the magenta 5g drone. Uh, it's kind of a uh, promotional video from the drone racing league, but uh, they talk about this 5G drone. Where magenta comes in, it's the color of the drone, which is a a T-Mobile, you know, sort of marketing color. So it's uh, it's that T-Mobile magenta, and it's it's a bit of a you know promotional kind of uh, kind of video, but uh, it it gives you some some information uh, about what we can expect to see coming up uh, pretty quickly, I think, we're going to start seeing this.
1: Yeah, the racing league's resuming in the fall, so hopefully there'll be some place to view it on television. You know, and Max, we probably really should try to get somebody from D- DRL on, again, to talk about the developments and and where they are.
0: Yeah, it's been quite a while since we have, and yeah, like you say that there, uh, a lot has transpired since then, I think.
1: So, the Navy, as in the United States Navy, has spent millions to develop a solar-powered UAV. This was from um, slashgear.com. We've got some cool website titles this, this episode. Um, and the Navy has awarded a $5 million contract to skydweller.arrow, another cool name.
0: The contract is to uh, build a solar energy-powered long endurance UAV. This is something that could stay aloft for between 30 and 90 days. Of course, flight duration with solar power depends on latitude. Right, the closer you are to the equator, the more solar energy you can harvest. And th- this um, this aircraft, which r- r- reportedly flew in December 2020. Uh, it looks a lot like other high-altitude solar-powered aircraft we've seen, both both manned or unmanned.
1: Giant wings with solar cells on top of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, high-altitude, long-endurance. Remember, Max, in our list of terms, HAL was one of those ones that we always wanted to talk about, was HAL, lo- high-altitude, long-endurance. Um, it can operate between 30,000 and 45,000 feet and carry a payload of 800 pounds, which is no little amount of weight to be carrying for upwards of 90 days. And where are all those uh, solar cells fit? The 236-foot wingspan. And the weight is 2,495 kilograms, and of course this is a persistent satellite for the navy uh, another term that we we've, we've gone on using all these years
0: if you look at the skydweller company website well for one thing you find that like <laughs> many other new companies developing new products there isn't a lot of information there very very few uh, very little information but they do say that the company is a us spanish aerospace company developing renewably powered aircraft solutions Now, get this capable of achieving perpetual flight with the most powerful payload capacity. And they say utilizing technology based on the longest continuous solar powered flight program in history. This fast growing startup is developing a new class of unmanned aircraft, thereby empowering a more secure and connected world. And we do have a video um, from uh, from them that we'll uh, put. We've got a couple of good videos for this week's episode, David. But uh, this is Skydweller Aero autonomous software flight test from April twenty twenty one.
1: Interesting, and we'll we'll have to pursue this to see what comes up with the Navy. Okay, Max, if you had to take a bet on what manufacturer controls the market share of emergency responder fleets who would you think that was?
0: I would guess that it's the same manufacturer that has the largest market share in all segments of uh, you know of uh, uh, this class of uh, UAVs that'd be DJI.
1: Yeah, so the, a survey done by the Airborne International Response Team, or ART, and its drone responders affiliate found that DJI drones make up over 90% of the fleets that are flown by U.S. first responder organizations. That compares with DJI's 70% to 80% share of commercial drone market. Yeah, okay, they, they, they really have this sewed up.
0: Yeah, they kind of do. Uh, this this survey, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes, was conducted in July 2021. And they found that 422 of the 467 respondents claimed to be operating DJI drones as part of their fleet. Now, 92% of law enforcement UAS programs and 92.5% of major city public safety UAS programs said they operate DJI in major city means jurisdictions with a population of at least five hundred thousand people. Uh, so yeah, the the lion's share uh, by uh, DJI, uh, but they do uh, they, they t- do tell us about some of the also rans
1: Eighteen point four percent of all first responders in public safety operations is by Autel Robotics drones. 21% of the law enforcement drone programs, and 21.51% of those operated by large municipalities. So Autel is a not-close second, Right. but wait, there's more.
0: Skydio had a little over 11%. Parrot had just under 10%, and FLIR had a little over 9%. So the obvious question is, well, that adds up to more than 100%. So I take that to mean that uh, some of these organizations, some of these jurisdictions fly multiple manufacturers. Um, so when when we see that uh, DJI is, um, is flown by 90% of them, it doesn't mean that DJI has a 90% total market share because clearly some of these organizations fly more than one make, but still Despite that, it's clear that DJI has got the lion's share of this.
1: Lion's share in China. That's pretty good.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, of course, this is despite uh, what we've seen and talked about concerning, uh, you know, governments and uh, issues with DJI or claimed issues with DJI concerning privacy, protection of data, all of that. So clearly organizations are they're making a decision they're you know they're voting with their uh, tax dollars
1: well besides that max there's some other dji news
0: there is uh, you may recall that in may there was a report that said that the us department uh, of defense had uh, cleared dji at least for a couple of drones but subsequently the the dod refuted that claim uh, so that's you know that there's that little black eye, and then in July there was a uh, leaked Interior Department docu- uh, document, and it said that U.S. manufactured drones that were bought by U.S. administrations cost more and were less efficient than DJI drones. So that's uh, <laughs> a little good news for DJI. So yeah, the you know the whole. Chinese ownership issue with DJI, as well as some other electronics segments, uh, you know, kind of continues. The news for DJI is, uh, you know, it swings. It's positive, negative. It's positive, negative. But as we see, that hasn't stopped the uh, first responding community from uh, really, really latching on to the DJI drones.
1: Yeah, well they they want the best considering the first responders are just that first responders, so they want reliability and so and that's currently the best product is DJI. So and speaking of first responders, how about drones patrolling your beaches hmm. without lifeguards?
0: This comes from the Star News online. Brunswick County beaches have no lifeguards. Is technology the answer? So the Oak Island, North Carolina, uh, did something really interesting this year in March of 2021. They created an administrative uh, department. uh, Well, the administrative department, I should say, created a division, the Unmanned Aerial Systems uh, Services Division, the UAS Services Division. And this division provides... both aerial photography and video for, for Heidi of town departments, including the communications office, public works, development services, public utilities, and others. And they're even considering um, assisting fire and police in the future. But uh, they provide really a wide variety of services to, uh, to this town and this community.
1: Infrastructure inspections, project monitoring, pre- and post-storm inspections, marketing materials, sand dune regulation, and beach safety observation. Quote, we've got nine miles of beach and that's almost impossible to control any other way, Oak Island Mayor Ken Thomas said of the program. It would take a large police force to do force without it. So there's a lot of beaches being patrolled by UASs.
0: And the uh, sand dune regulation enforcement is a is a big part of this as well. Uh, sand dunes are or can be very fragile and are important to the uh, to the ecosystem and preventing or or limiting beach erosion and encroachment onto uh, development land. so uh, there are uh, regulations concerning that, and the locals of course uh, you know they don't they don't want, you know, maybe uh, well-intentioned but uninformed tourists or or others going out there and, uh, you know, doing simple activities that negatively impact the sand dunes. Uh, so uh, it's a good way to monitor what's going on out there. And, and like you said, David, with, uh, you know, so many beaches, and, uh, it's such a long beach, I should say, and it's kind of impractical to have— lifeguards and other you know similar uh, uh people stationed all across the beach so uh, this is a this is a good way to monitor what's going on i i you know the tone i get from this david is is different than what we find in other communities that implement drone programs that being that oftentimes we hear about citizens who are up in arms over you know their perception that uh, privacy violations are uh, you know, sure to come. It sort of seems like these residents are, um, you know, really supportive of this program.
1: And North Carolina definitely has been proactive on the, um, as far as the, the Department of Transportation in North Carolina has been proactive about drones. The pilot maintains an FAA Part 107 as well as an NCDOt drone operations permit, and completed the FAA recurrent training. So it sounds like it's a huge force of one, but he, they're still doing far more than just. Um, but one person's doing a hell of a lot more observation than a huge police force. So, good use of drones. Yeah, absolutely. Another good use of drones selling houses realtors shift the mini drones to showcase properties to home buyers in increasingly hot housing market and one where a lot of people are buying things online and not actually going in person
0: that's right the covid pandemic really um, you know brought home you know the concept of uh, viewing products purchasing products you know remotely um, contactless sales, you could call it, and uh, you know that's just increased in importance. And you know, real estate—I'm uh, yeah, sure you remember, David. Real estate was one of the early applications that we talked about years ago in this program. There were a lot of people out there uh, with a drone, uh, willing to charge fifty bucks, maybe a hundred, to go create a video of a, of a home for sale and um, you know, sell that service. But what we see here is that companies, serious companies that provide that kind of service are, are being created. And the one that's showcased here is uh, called uh, Virtual Drone Tours. And it's a company that Kane Coston and his wife Sarah formed. And they produce videos not only of the exterior, of properties for sale, but also the interiors, and so you get a, a you know a really comprehensive view uh, online of what the house, what the property looks like.
1: And you know, we've talked about earlier in the year that footage of the um, bowling alley and the other. So the first-person views can be stunning, and and these the videos can be found on. Kane Costlin's YouTube channel, and we'll have a link for that in the show notes. But they are pretty impressive videos showing the houses and showing a lot of detail you wouldn't expect for a UAV flying inside a house.
0: Yeah, I agree completely. And it's pointed out, I think maybe it's some comments from Kane, but to do this well takes a little bit of skill. I mean, you've got to fly smoothly, but I also think that. You're trying to capture this property, and you know if you're trying to market it. I mean, you really want to kind of tell a story through the video that you're creating with the drone flights, and that's different than just flying your Phantom around, you know, the house, the yard, yeah. and, and just you know pointing it at the house and making videos. There's there's some skill involved to do this, uh, to do this professionally. And this is one company that you know seems to be doing that, but there are others out there as well. We're seeing more and more of them uh, take this on, and of course, for for the real estate industry, I mean, this is perfect because you can uh, introduce properties for sale to potential customers who may be located, who knows where. You know, you don't have to uh, visit the property that's being sold, um, in order to uh, really get a fantastic understanding of just exactly what it is. So yeah, the real estate industry loves this.
1: Well, Max, you've been on one hell of a road trip, but you did something that you've never done before. Something that we've all talked about on Airplane Geeks a lot, but you were the only one left that hadn't done it. Mm -hmm. So how was Oshkosh? yeah.
0: EAA AirVenture Oshkosh 2021 uh, was amazing. It's big. It's just really, really big. And there are a lot of things to see. And the biggest disappointment that I had was that Volocopter was there. And we've talked about Volocopter in the past. But what I didn't catch in time was that they were going to going to fly, and in fact did fly the Volocopter. So I, you know, I really would have liked to have seen that and talked. I, I found my way to the uh, Volocopter tent, uh, which was being in the process of being closed up um, for the day. So I, I couldn't even talk to to anybody, but there were a couple of people there. You know, who are buttoning down the you know the tent walls and things like that. And they were uh, when I explained to them, you know who I was and um, what the UAV digest was, they were kind enough to let me stick my cell phone through, through the um you know two sections of the of the tent walls there and and get a shot of the of the volocopter. It's got a big footprint. There's there's no denying that. Um, you know, you've got this uh, relatively compact two-seat fuselage underneath this big array of, uh, of uh, propellers, uh, of rotors. And it does take up a, a sizable footprint in total. Uh, but, you know, unlike some other designs where the rotors are down low to the ground, these are all above you know you're above your head so speak for yourself well <laughs> no i did not even think you might be able to walk underneath this thing david pretty close but yeah i mean sure you would duck a little bit same as with a helicopter you know you, you duck even though know, you don't need to so i'm i'm disappointed that uh, i you know i didn't get to to see it fly or to, uh, to you know to talk with the crew but um, I did get a view of it, and um, we can put a picture in the in the show notes. Well, we've got a lot of uh, stuff for the show notes this episode, David. Um, some, some good videos, and uh, I'll pop in this picture of the Volocopter as well.
1: Very cool. So I, I guess, Max, we should wrap this up. Um, our, our ladies are calling us. Um, <laughs> no, not too much
0: detail there, David.
1: No, I'm just leaving it at that. Okay. We know who the bosses are.
0: Yeah. So thanks for listening to the UAV Digest. This has been episode 379. We're at the uavdigest.com. You can find show notes there. If you uh, come to this episode later and don't want to scroll down through uh, old episodes, you can go straight to the show notes by visiting the uavdigest.com slash 379.
1: And, of course, we want you to join our Slack listener team, and you do that by sending us an email to the to feedback at the UAV digest. Um, and you can join the conversation all year long, all week long. Um, and of course you can find us on social media on Facebook at UAV digest on Twitter at UAV digest. And I'm so out of practice. <laughs> um, and of course all other social medias, you can find Max and I on LinkedIn. Um, but with that, I'm going to say, this is David, And this is Max saying goodbye till next time. Thanks for listening.